A reading from Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 1 and 11 through 14, pages 724 of the Blue Pew Bible. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, I am thankful for the way that God has gifted this congregation with voices to lead us, and it is a special delight to be able to have the words of the text sung and read uh, for today. Before we come to this great passage in Ezekiel 36 and 37, let's bow our heads and hearts and let's pray. Father in heaven, as we have gathered uh, together this week uh, to pray and to be together um, and to do life uh, together uh, under your word, and as we've been scattered throughout the city and our places of work and school and, and play, it has been a heavy week. Um, it has been a heavy week in the world um, in a way that is, is reflected maybe most visibly in, in the tensions that we see on our campuses, but, but beneath the surface, invisibly, those tensions um, color uh, our every waking thought and our, and our conversations and our prayers. And, and it's been a heavy week in our own lives as well. Um, it has been a week uh, of, of many burdens, um, of physical ailments, um, of stress, of mental and emotional anguish. Um, it has been a week in which there have been things to celebrate uh, and to rejoice over and to give you thanks over. Um, and sometimes it seems like the, the confluence of all of these things, even in just one life, in, in each of our individual lives, much less when we come together, uh, and seek to be faithful to your word and, and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. It almost seems like too much. Uh, and so we are so grateful uh, to be able to come into this place where you gather us together um, and you speak your words uh, to us. You speak words of promise. You speak words um, of correction. You speak words of forgiveness and assurance and of salvation. And your words themselves are salvation because it is by your word and by the power of your spirit um, that you save us, that you change us, um, that you mold us more and more into the likeness of your son. It, it, is, it is because of your word uh, to us and your word in our lives um, and the, the power of your word even as we taste uh, and see your goodness at this table that's going to be in front of us. 
um, that you cause fruit uh, to grow in our lives. Lord, our, our prayer um, is that you would do all of these things. Father, that you would um, receive the cries of our hearts, and you know the cry of every heart in this room. Uh, and, and your word says that you are a God who sees and who remembers and who knows each of us because you have made us and you're closer to us than we are to ourselves. And we pray that you would also uh, receive our joy and our thanksgiving and our gratitude. Um, but much more than that, we pray um, that your words uh, would have their way with us uh, and, and, and do the work that only that they can do and that your spirit can do. Um, Father, uh, we pray as we, as we come together, I pray that the words of my mouth and we pray that the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we have almost come to the end of our series in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, we've been in this, in this book this fall um, in order to talk about and think about the presence of the Lord, about the ever-present, awe-inspiring power of God to give life and strength to his people. And we have traced that concept uh, through most of the book. Um, it has not always been easy sailing by any means. We had 22 chapters of judgment to get through. We did it in two sermons because I couldn't take 22 sermons of that. Neither could you. Um, but now we have come uh, to the end. We have come to the part of Ezekiel um, that we can truly call the gospel according to Ezekiel. Um, there's an outline. We've, we've pointed this, this out to you each week. There's an outline on, uh, it's probably page 14. It's page 14 of your order of service, um, if you want to know where we are. Uh, we're looking at chapters 36 and 37 um, this week. Um, and these are certainly chapters that I would encourage you, even though we're not going to cover every word here, I would certainly encourage you, take some time to read these, because uh, they are beautiful. They are magnificent. Um, these chapters are about hope. This is the chapters um, where the hope uh, that God is holding out to his people in exile uh, is most clearly offered. And what we're going to see as we, as we look at these chapters is three aspects of the hope um, that God offers to his people. We're going to see that uh, it is a hope which, first of all, is grounded. Um, it is not a baseless hope. Uh, it is not an arbitrary hope. It is a grounded hope. Um, secondly, it's a radical hope. Um, and thirdly, it is a hope which is cosmic, which touches all of the cosmos, all of the creation. So it is a grounded hope. It is a radical hope. Uh, and it is a, a cosmic hope. Um, I've mentioned before one of my favorite moral theologians, uh, he might be the only moral theologian that I've read a lot of, um, is Oliver O'Donovan. And, and one of the ways that he talks about hope um, is he says, hope is what you cling to when everything that you expect about the way the world is and everything that you can put into it by your own efforts and your own planning is coming up short. Um, hope is what you look to when you've come to the end of yourself. Um, if you feel like you've come to the end of yourself, uh, this is a hope you need to hear about. This grounded and radical and cosmic hope. Um, let's take a look at this. First of all, it is a, a grounded hope. What I mean by this 
uh, is that there is a clear basis for the hope that God is offering to his people. You, You ready for what it is? The hope rests on God's zeal for his own glory. I want, to, I, want to, I want to talk about what that means, and then I want to talk about why that's actually really good news. Um, so what does that mean? God's zeal for his own glory. What's, what's going on uh, in, in these chapters? Um, God revealed himself to Moses as a God full of um, uh, gracious and, and mercy, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness on the one hand, but also a God who takes sin very seriously, right? who would by no means uh, let the guilty go unpunished. Um, by this time in the book of Ezekiel, uh, we have seen very clearly for 22 chapters um, that God takes sin very seriously, and he upholds justice, and he will not let the guilty go unpunished. So he has upheld that aspect of his character, but that's created a new problem. And, and the problem is described uh, right here in verse 20 of, of chapter 36, It says, when they came to the nations, in other words, as they were sent into exile, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. The problem is that God's own justice is now causing his name to be profaned. Um, Profaned here doesn't mean anything to do with profanity. It doesn't mean anything particularly offensive. It just means that God's name is being talked about as though it were ordinary, right? So the distinction here is between the sacred, the holy, the set apart, and just the ordinary, the the normal, the not holy. And and what's happening here um, is that God's name is being spoken of as though it were just the name of a God alongside other gods. And in particular, as though it were the name of a God who, like most of the other gods, couldn't keep his people safe. Um, It says, They profane my holy name, and that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. Um, We know that this is the way that the nations talked about the gods. This This was just a common understanding. Every nation's got a god. Most nations have more than one. Um... But if you go out and you do battle with another nation, it's tantamount to the two gods doing battle. And if the nation loses, it's because the god lost. Um, In 2 Kings, there's a place where, this is in the north, so up up in the northern kingdoms, um, before Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdoms, um, they send out this this court official with this awesome title. He's called the Rabshakeh. And, and he comes and he basically taunts the people of Israel. And, and what he says to them, is he says, don't be deceived that the Lord is going to keep you safe. And then he lists a bunch of other nations and their gods. He says, this God couldn't keep that nation safe. This God couldn't keep that nation safe. Your God will not keep you safe either. This, this is how people talked about gods. So the concern here is that because the people of, of Judah now because God's people have been gone into exile, people are talking about God as though he were just one God alongside other gods. Weak, capricious, bloodthirsty. And God will not have it. God will not allow his name to be spoken of in that way. God is a revealing God. 
God is a God who wants to be known as the God that He is. King of King and Lord of Lords, the Creator of everything, seen and unseen. And so, He says that He is about to act. He's about to take action. Bradley mentioned last week in in chapter 34, uh, in the section when God says, I am the good shepherd, those first-person pronouns just jumped out. So many repeated, I, I am the good shepherd, I will do this, I will care, right? Same thing happens here. I will is repeated in chapter 36 about as often as it was in 34. God is about to act. And he says he's going to do four things. So now looking at verses 24 to 27 of chapter 36. First of all, he says, I'm going to gather you from all the countries and bring you back. Secondly, I'm going to clean you from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. So I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to cleanse you of your sin. But then I'm not just going to cleanse you of your sin and say, okay, now you're clean. Go ahead and try again. Let's see what happens this time. He said, I'm going to deal with the root of sin. I'm going to get right to the very heart of it, literally. I'm going to get right to your hearts of stone. Um, These are the words that we sung. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. I, I, I really am so thankful that we have that song, uh, that we all have those verses memorized. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly thankful that we have a song among all the songs that we might know that, that might get stuck in our head that has this message. Because I, I did a quick scan of the top 25 most downloaded songs on Spotify this week, and you'll be surprised, but this message about being caused to walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey all his rules, that doesn't come up very often. Um, Thank goodness that we have this song that we can sing where we can celebrate um, a God who changes our hearts, uh, a God who gives us hearts capable of worshiping Him, of obeying Him, of doing the good, of choosing the life that He set out in front of us instead of the death that our hearts are bent towards. And why is it that God is going to do all of this? Well, again, he's actually very clear about this in verse 32. He says, it's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. He's still being very clear about the seriousness of their sin. And here's why this is such good news. This is such good news because that means that the ground of our hope The ground of the hope that God offers to his people is something eternal. It is something unchanging. It is something that doesn't depend on our performance. He is not saying, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit, and and you'll just be so lovable that that's what's motivating me to act. If that were it, if, if, if any one of us had to honestly look at ourselves and say, so am I always acting in such a way that I deserve God's mercy? That would be a shaky, fragile ground for hope. 
But God gives us an enduring and eternal and unchanging ground for hope when he says, I'm going to do this for the sake of my own name, for the sake of my own glory. Now, we'll see by the end that, of course, him acting for his glory uh, is entirely in our interest. It already is here. It's what's bringing the people back out of exile. Um, But we can see it even now when we look at Jesus. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus go? The Gospel of John, when when John uses the word glory, when John talks about God's glory being revealed, he's talking about the cross. That's what he means. And Jesus tells us in chapter 17 of, of John's Gospel that this great high priestly prayer where we get to listen in a conversation between two persons of the Trinity, um, he says, I have done everything that I've done in order to glorify the Father. He says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' motivation was to bring glory to God. And he sends the Spirit in order to point us to Jesus, glorifying the Father. So we get wrapped up in this wonderful triune relationship of of giving glory within God. And that's the ground of our our hope. But that hope, secondly, is not just grounded, uh, it is radical. It is a radical hope lying even on the other side of death itself. This is, this is chapter 37, right? This might be the passage, if you knew any passage in Ezekiel, the Valley of the Dry Bones is the one that you, that you might have been familiar with. Um, picture this scene. Okay, so in verse 1 of chapter 37, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord. Um, that's happened a couple times uh, already in the book of Ezekiel, that, that God has brought Ezekiel someplace in the Spirit. Um, And it has never been pretty, right? Every time, the thing that God has had to show Ezekiel has been something um, pretty ghastly. Last time, he was brought uh, into uh, Jerusalem to see just how deep the idolatry was running within within the temple itself. So you could could imagine that he's wondering, what am I going to see this time? And and at first, it, it doesn't look any better, right? I mean, he's in a valley full of dry bones. Um, that's not something that you just run across. Um, Pretty much every civilization in history has placed a high value on respectfully honoring the remains of the dead. You don't just leave bones lying out there. What Ezekiel is seeing is the result of a massacre, something horrific has taken place here. And it happened a long, long time ago, long enough for these bones uh, to be all dried out. God says to Ezekiel, verse 11, we read this, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. And it's even more poetic in the original Dried up our bones, perished our hope, cut off we ourselves. What they're saying is, exile is as bad as death. 
And so this question comes, can these bones live? And the answer comes back from Ezekiel. Uh, Wisely, he says, well, you know that. Only you know that. God tells him to prophesy, to preach to these bones. And he might be wondering, what good is it going to do to preach to the dead? Of course, he's been preaching uh, to the living, uh, but those living have, have been, you know, like the ones spoken of in, in Isaiah, right, who have eyes but don't see and ears but don't hear. So this time he's being asked to preach to those who you would think are beyond hearing altogether. Um, this is pointing to the true radical nature of this, of this hope. Um, I like the way uh, Peter Lightheart, um, he was one of the commentaries that I read when we did that study in the book of, of Kings, the books of Kings. And what he said all the way through, and I think it applies here as well, he said, the message of the prophets in those books and here also is not Israel has sinned, therefore Israel needs to get its act together or it will die. The message is Israel has sinned, Israel is already dead. So cling to the God who raises the dead. That's your only hope. That is the radical hope uh, that is being offered here and that is played out as Ezekiel prophesies to these bones and as they come together and are knitted together with muscles and sinews and flesh. And then he's told to preach once more this time to the breath. Uh, This word breath, it's actually repeated several times here. Sometimes it's breath, sometimes it's spirit, sometimes it's wind. It's always the same word, breath and spirit and wind. Um, He says, prophesy to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. What's happening here is nothing less than an act of new creation. This This is intentionally looking like creation itself, when God forms the man out of the dust of the earth, and then it says, he breathed in him, and he became a living being. That's in Genesis 2. Nothing less than new creation is taking place here. Now, if you ask, so is this, I mean, on the one hand, this chapter, 37, uh, runs in parallel with 36. Um, both are offering hope um, from, uh, from exile, which is being compared as being as, as bad as death. Um, both, uh, as part of that hope, talk about a new spirit being put within you. Uh, in chapter 37, the spirit being breathed into these bodies. And so if you say, so is this a metaphor for the end of the exile? Or is it something more than that? I think the answer is yes. Uh, Yes, it's a metaphor for the end of exile, but it is more than that. It is offering an even more radical hope than the end of exile. What you have to realize is that the problem posed by the exile that God needs to solve here was not the whole of humanity's problem. Having Israel removed from the land and having the temple be empty of the priesthood and of his praises, and and, and of even him lifting up God's glory, lifting up and leaving the temple, as we saw back in chapter 11. 
um, all of those represent a theological problem because those things weren't ever supposed to happen. God's, God's praises were never supposed to stop in the temple. His, never, his presence was never supposed to lift off and leave the temple. But you could expand that not just to the temple in Israel. You could expand that to the whole earth. Scripture talks about the whole earth being God's temple and humanity being set in that temple as God's priest, the one who's supposed to lead all of creation in singing his praises. And if that's true, then just as exile of Israel is a problem, death is a problem. If we all end in the grave, and the Old Testament is really clear, there's no praise of God in the grave. The Psalms say that. If we all end in the grave, then how will God's praises continue forever and ever? If God's priest ends up dead and lifeless, who leads creation? The amazing thing is that just as we see in the book of Ezekiel that God's solution to the problem of exile was to lift off from the temple and actually to go to Babylon. That's why Ezekiel sees him in the first place in chapter 1. God has gone with his people into exile. He would do it again. God would go with his people, not just into exile. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, would take our nature in order to go with us into death. He would defeat sin and death in his own body, the same body, which would be the first fruits of the resurrection that's gestured at here in this scene with the Valley of the Dry Bones. It's not an accident that the New Testament talks about being united to Christ, being in him, as new creation. That's literally what Paul says. If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation, he says in 2 Corinthians 5. And it's not an accident that Jesus himself recapitulates this scene with his disciples. At the end of John's Gospel, again, Jesus said to his disciples after the resurrection, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them, it says, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. There's a radical hope, not just for salvation from exile, but for the defeat of death itself. But lastly, this hope is cosmic. And when I say cosmic, I don't mean like up in the stars, um, I mean touching on the whole of the cosmos, of all of creation. Um, the Valley of the Dry Bones is a scene that you probably knew. I'll bet you don't know what comes after it. It'd be kind of surprising if, if, if you did. Um, right after the Valley of the Dry Bones, starting at verse 15, God has Ezekiel do one more of these um, kind of lived-out parable things where he acts something out. He says, I want you to take a stick, and I want you to write the word Israel on part of the stick and then another stick, and write the word Judah, and then bind them together and make them one stick. Now, 
that's reunification language, right? The kingdom had been divided into Israel and Judah. Um, ask yourself, was that something Ezekiel was even hoping for? What, what, what do you think Ezekiel and the people in Babylon had been hoping for? By the time they were taken into exile, this, that happened in about 586. Ezekiel himself was probably a little earlier, but about 586. It's about 150 years after the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed. Chances are, they had forgotten. They, it, 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 that's too far gone. You know, you look at the, the different stories uh, in, in the books of the kings, there was never any good king whatsoever in, in Israel. It was just downhill constantly in the, in, the, in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, Ezekiel himself would have remembered um, one king in particular named Josiah, who was king when Ezekiel would have been a boy, who carried out these reforms, um, who really did try to get the, the southern kingdom of Judah back on track. Um, who really did try to purge idolatry from the nation. That's probably what Ezekiel would have been hoping for. Ezekiel would have been thinking, I get it, you're going to bring us back there, and we're going to have another king, this, this, this shepherd like David, that was talked about in chapter 34, and he's going to lead reforms again, and we're going to get back to that. And here God is saying, no, 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 no. You're thinking too small. That's not all I'm going to do. I'm going back further. I'm going to solve the problem of the division of the kingdom. But then he says, I'm actually going to go back even further. Because if you remember, before the kingdom was divided, were things great then? Things were not great. Before the kingdom was divided, they had one king who was a man after God's own heart, but who was anything but perfect. And a king before that, who was a disaster, Saul, a king like all the other nations. But what we read last week, and what we see again, if you look at verses 24 to 28, the promises about a shepherd like David come back. I'm going to give you the leader that you were meant to have all along. I'm going to go back and solve that. And I'm going to go back even further, because before you asked for a king like all the other nations, were things great then? Well, that's, that's the part of Israel's history that we read about in the book of Judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, you know, no, things were terrible. The refrain in Judges is, every man did what was right in his own eyes, right? In those days, there was no king. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. But as we've seen here, God is going to address that, giving us a new spirit, a new heart, causing us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey all his rules, not doing whatever's right in our own eyes, which leads to disaster. In this one chapter, God works his way back through the whole history of the Old Testament. He says, I am dealing with all of it. There's even Eden language in chapter 36. He talks about, as you get back to the land, it's going to be like Eden. The amazing thing is that when we look at Scripture as a whole and we ask, what is our ultimate hope? What are we all really looking forward to, this, this cosmic hope that touches everything? It's actually even better than just getting back to the garden. 
Which, when you think about it, if God were just to turn back time and put us back in the garden and say, okay, try again, you wouldn't expect any different results. In the book of Revelation, we see where Eden was meant to be heading the whole time and where our story really ends up. And it is, it is truly, truly cosmic. Um, it is a, a new heavens and a new earth. In Eden, God had separated the waters, which always represent chaos. He had separated the waters um, and had caused dry land uh, to appear where there could be life. But if you look at Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth, the waters aren't just being held back. They're gone. Chaos has been dealt with completely. Um, In Eden, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he separated the light from the darkness. And he had this alternation, morning, evening, morning, evening. right? Light, dark, light, dark. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no darkness. It's just light. And you don't need a sun. You don't need a moon. Because God himself is the light. Everything has been put right. This did remind me of the quote that I put on the front of the bulletin from the return of the king when Samwise Gamgee awakens and looks up and sees Gandalf, who he thought had died two books ago. He said, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The cosmic hope offered here in the book of Ezekiel tells us that everything sad is going to come untrue. Not because God is going to make it that it didn't happen, but because this is the power of our God, that he can take what is evil and use it for our good without asking us not to call it evil. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's one sitting on a throne, and it's a lamb. He's the good shepherd, but he's also the lamb, and he's the lamb who looks like he was slain. The crucifixion was the greatest evil ever perpetrated. And in working it for our good, God doesn't undo it. He puts it on the throne. He raises Jesus to new life, the first fruits of the new life that we will share with him. Let me ask you, what is it that you are hoping for? Or, or a better question, what part of the world are you tempted not to hope for? What, what part of the world are you tempted to think that is beyond the scope? That can't be turned to good. That can't be redeemed. God, throughout these chapters, has been saying, they will know that I am the Lord. And in verse 28 of chapter 37, for the first time, he adds a little bit. He says, the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. 
when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The nations will look on this nation that has been brought through the grave and out and will know that this is the Lord who sanctifies Israel. How do you know when you're dealing with the Lord? One way to know when you are dealing with the Lord is when you are dealing with one that can even use all of the pain, all of the suffering, even the pain and the suffering that you yourself have caused and that you yourself worry could put a barrier between you and him. And he can even use that for your good without calling it anything other than what it is, without asking you not to call it evil. Jesus is one that we can come to with our pain, and we can say, this hurts, and he says, I know. With our suffering, he says, I know. With our guilt, with our shame, say, I've, I've done so much, he says, I know. And look what I have done with it. Look at my hands. This lamb that looks like he was slain is the same Savior who still had the holes in his hands, who could say, look, I have taken that, and I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. I went to the cross knowing all of that, and I have paid for it, and it is done. And it's on that ground that he can put this table in front of us, that he can open a place for us to come and have fellowship with him boldly, without guilt, with rejoicing. Let's pray before we come.